Previously on Inhospitable. She told me, okay, uh, you know what, what is going to happen. And that's when he started to explain that uh, I'm going to be there in that team. Now it was crazy for me. Yeah, I was crushed. <laughs> and he said, Pastor, Pastor, they trapped me. Bikindu's immigration attorney said the Republic of Congo sponsored his visa, then turned around and pulled it not long after he arrived in the U.S. He refused instructions from his government to testify falsely that the government was uninvolved in a, in a massacre that occurred. The lawyer tells us while Bikindu feared for his life in his home country, a judge denied his case for asylum. It, frankly, I, 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 find, it, I find it scandalous. Um, that that his uh, asylum appeal was was apparently you know so easily denied. Um, I think it's really a miscarriage of justice. I'm Stephen Stacks, and this is Inhospitable. You know, ICE then uses incarceration as a litigation strategy because, I mean, this the conditions in the jail are not, you know, good by any stretch of the imagination. So a lot of people will, you know, just give up on their cases, even if they have a, a potential case to fight, because they just, you know, don't want to stay here. Um, and the judges know it, and the trial attorneys know it, and the ICE agents know it. And, you know, people just, you know, give up because they don't, they just don't want to be here anymore. They just want to go home. They want to get out. I think the first question people ask, you know, why, you know, why are we doing this? You know, why are we detaining people in this way? Um, But you know what? I'm not going to back down. So what? Maybe it is a concentration camp. I don't want to make it look nice. Jill Bikindu came to the United States legally and applied for asylum with a well-founded fear of political persecution in his home country. After living legally under an order of supervision for a decade, in 2018, ICE trapped Jill while he was complying with their appointment schedule. Despite previous assurances that he was not a target for deportation, on January 9th of 2018, ICE incarcerated Jill even though he did not have a criminal history and put him on the fast track for deportation. After he was detained in Charlotte, North Carolina, his first stop was in York County, South Carolina. The first detention was uh, in uh, South... South Carolina. South Carolina, yeah. Mm-hmm. South Carolina, maybe one, two days. I didn't any Complicating Gilles' warrantless incarceration was the fact that Gilles suffered from an array of health conditions that required daily medication to keep him healthy. He did not have the medication on his person when he was detained, and even if he'd had some, ICE wouldn't have let him take it with him. Based on Gilles' experience in all of the jails and detention centers that he was in, you're not, you're not allowed to have things. Wesley Spears Newsom, an associate pastor at Greenwood Forest. Um, so there was no, there would have been no point in letting him 
keep the bag because they just would have taken it away um, when he got to detention because they don't let you have personal items at all. Um, even if Gilles had had medication in his bag, I, I doubt they would have let him have access to that because they took everything out. Charlotte ICE official David Cundy claimed that Jill would be detained only momentarily in South Carolina before being moved to Georgia to a detention center that was capable of on-site medical care, including prescription medications. Only that's not at all what happened. Records indicated that Jill was part of many targeted actions at the Charlotte ICE office that cold day in January. York County Detention Center received numerous immigrant detainees that day, as publicly available mugshots and information indicated. Instead of staying for a few hours before heading to Georgia, Jill's stay was much longer. There was a couple of times, and I mean, your health was went down quickly after they detained you, right? You went to the hospital a couple of times. Yeah, 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 because I wasn't, take, I wasn't taking my medication. Jill's lack of medication would quickly become an almost lethal problem. Meanwhile, back in Jill's community in Raleigh, his church was making noise about his detention. Baptist church leaders from around Wake County and beyond gather in prayer and a call to action today, asking elected officials to put a stop to Jill Bakindu's potential deportation. The reverend at Greenwood Forest Baptist Church said the Apex factory worker was a regular in their congregation and a law-abiding citizen is fighting to save one of its members from deportation. Jill Bakindu was taken into immigration custody earlier this week. They fear if he's deported, he will die. There wasn't any blueprint for what we were doing. Wesley Spears Newsom. Nobody we knew had done anything like this before, and there, there wasn't quite anybody to talk to. Um, I remember feeling very adrift in the midst of that because there there was no path to follow. We were just doing the best that we could, the best that we knew how to do. But I do remember at the at the press conference the day in the days after he was detained, just all of the people who showed up for that in our sanctuary that we were holding a press conference with lots of our church people and community partners standing behind us, um, so much so that we ended up on the news that night talking about Jill's case. I mean, I remember we were entering into full crisis mode. Lauren Eford, senior pastor of Greenwood Forest Baptist Church. I remember turning um, our staff conference room into what we often refer to as the war room. Um, I remember... Um, gathering all of the information to all of our political leaders and all of the media um, and you know the stress of trying to make sure that we were informing everyone about what was happening um, I remember sitting in the conference room and I remember when Jill called um, for the first time from York Detention Center in South Carolina I remember being jumpy around my phone for a long time because one of the things that ICE did allow me to give to Jill, and I have no idea how long he got to keep it before he had to memorize it, were my phone number and Lauren's phone number, our senior pastor. 
And those were the two numbers that he had to contact anybody outside of outside of the detention center. And I knew every time my phone rang, um, I thought it might be Jill and I I had to keep it like right next to me all the time because that was the only way that he could communicate with us. And if we missed it, it would be hours, um, if not a day or more or days before we would be able to communicate with him again. Um, Cause they're not, he didn't have on demand communication. We couldn't get a hold of him whenever we wanted to that. That's simply not allowed. So I, I remember, I remember getting those calls and picking them up and saying, this is a detainee calling from Stewart detention center. Do you accept the call? And I remember even after the whole detention and deportation processes were over, um, still being jumpy around my phone. I remember uh, standing up before the congregation to preach uh, the Sunday that after it happened, he called and he said, um, I don't know, I was feeling so down about what to say to the whole church. And he said, Pastor, Pastor, um, I know you all are doing everything you can to help me. And I want to make sure that when you go to church in the morning, that you tell everybody how grateful I am. And I'll never forget that he said that um, in the middle of being held in you know, an awful, awful detention center. He called me to make sure he knew I was going to say something on Sunday morning. And he said, I know you're going to say something. So please tell everyone how grateful I am. While the congregation at Greenwood Forest Baptist Church was making as much noise as possible and waiting near their phones in case Jill called, Jill was transported to Stewart Detention Center in Lumpkin, Georgia after a few days long stay in York County, South Carolina. Those few days were enough to jeopardize his medical condition and he was hospitalized immediately upon arrival at Stewart. The closest hospital was almost an hour away in Americus, Georgia. This was the the first concern that I raised with David Cundy, who's in charge of the Charlotte ICE office, was how is Jill going to get his medication? How is he going to be taken care of? And he asserted that they were only sending Jill to Stewart Detention Center because it had the medical capabilities to take care of Jill. And that was the extent of the acknowledgement we got of his medical conditions from ICE once he'd been detained. I know we sent um, word ahead via his doctor to Stewart Detention Center. His doctor talked with the medical staff at Stewart Detention Center, gave him the exact list of medications that Jill needed, and he didn't get those um, medications for two to three weeks after he got in there. And these are not like very difficult medications to get like some of the HIV medication sure but like the blood pressure medication and the stuff he needed for his diabetes and for his kidneys these are not rare medicines Jill's order of supervision his legal paperwork that allowed him to live and work in the US had specified that these medical conditions were the reason he was being allowed to stay of course when the order of supervision disappeared Jill's conditions didn't disappear along with it. Instead, Jill was thrust into an environment where neglect, 
hostility, and mistreatment were all too common. Despite assurances that he would be well cared for, Gilles suffered numerous medical setbacks while in ICE custody, and he isn't the only one. I already have a concentration camp. Andy, you gonna cover me on this too? It's called Tent City. That was former Sheriff Joe Arpaio, commenting on his notorious prison in Maricopa County, Arizona. Arpaio was first elected as sheriff in 1992 and won re-election repeatedly for the next 20 years. Arpaio achieved national prominence for the harsh conditions of his personally designed prison known as Tent City. Tent City was a county jail, but not like any other county jail in the United States. Comprised of tents in the Arizona heat regularly topping 100 degrees, the jail was noteworthy for its dehumanizing treatment of inmates. Quickly, Tent City also became a de facto jail for immigrants, as Arpaio made it his personal job to arrest anyone he believed was an undocumented immigrant in his jurisdiction. This vigilantism led to a lawsuit accusing Arpaio of racial profiling and saw him eventually convicted of contempt of court for ignoring court orders to stop profiling Hispanic and Latino residents of Maricopa County. During the 2016 election, then-candidate Donald Trump heralded Joe Arpaio in Tent City as a prototype for immigration enforcement under a Trump administration. I love Sheriff Joe. I'll tell you what, there he is right there. When Sheriff Joe endorses Trump, that means there's nobody like Trump on immigration, that we know. That we know. Thank you, Sheriff Joe. In audio you heard earlier, Arpaio likened his prototype for immigration enforcement to a concentration camp, like the ones that imprisoned and murdered millions of Jews in Nazi Germany, or kidnapped and held Japanese Americans during World War II. When pressed on this after the 2016 election by The Atlantic, Arpaio didn't shrink from the description. You said the tent city is a concentration camp. Okay, I said it one time coming out at an Italian-American club, but you know what? I'm not going to back down. So what? Maybe it is a concentration camp. I don't want to make it look nice like the Hilton Hotel. I want to say it's a tough place so people don't want to come there. The massive immigration detention system in the United States is one of a kind in the world, and it has repeatedly come under scrutiny for mistreatment of inmates and its financial practices. While these conditions have persisted for years, detention centers came into the national spotlight shortly before Gilles Bikindu was detained. In December of 2017, a special report was released by the Trump administration's own Department of Homeland Security revealing that detention centers used by Immigration and Customs Enforcement exhibited clear failures in the treatment of the people being held there. This is a summary of the inspection. Quote, Our inspections of five detention facilities raised concerns about the treatment and care of ICE detainees at four of the facilities visited. Overall, we identified problems that undermine the protection of detainees' rights, their humane treatment, 
and the provision of a safe and healthy environment. Some of the problems DHS identified were excessive strip searches, refusal of language services to non-English speaking inmates, intimidation to prevent filing complaints, misused segregation, moldy and rotting food, and generally unhealthy detention conditions. One of the prisons at the center of this investigation was Stewart Detention Center in Lumpkin, Georgia. Amilcar Valencia works for El Refugio, a visitation organization in Lumpkin that does its best to care for detained immigrants at Stewart. Uh, it's, it's sometimes hard for for me because I I've been there so many times and sometimes I forget how you know how uh, daunting how difficult it is to be in that space uh, in the attention center. Uh, but I do see like people who never been into a detention facility, a jail, or a, a state prison uh, um, are very shocked to learn about this detention center, about what happened inside and how people are treated inside of the detention center. Like many immigration detention centers, Stewart is far away from the public eye. It is massively inconvenient to get to Stewart. It's two and a half hours from Atlanta, Georgia. And so much of what they do simply is not visible. Stewart is far from the city, so just being removed from you know, the city of Atlanta is two and a half hours from, from Atlanta. Just being uh, isolated, you know, physical isolation um, uh, in remote locations uh, is something that, you know, you know, people are asked, you know, why? What, what is it in here? You know, is it like, is it something behind or, um, you know, having this attention center so far, so far removed from the community, from, from the public view? The isolation of Stewart Detention Center led Christy Thompson, writing for Vice, to call it, quote, the black hole of America's immigration system. She wrote in December 2016 that the city of Columbus, which is 40 miles outside Lumpkin, is your last chance to find a hotel, to tap into Wi-Fi, or to have reliable cell service. I mean, I have to drive an hour to go grocery shop. Yeah. You know, there, there's nothing here. Marty Rosenbluth, the only immigration attorney who resides in Lumpkin, the first byproduct of this isolation is the lack of attorneys available to immigrants in detention. On the average, you know, and I do count, I mean, it depends on the day of the week because Friday has a lighter load, but um, usually there's anywhere between 120, 140 cases on the docket on a given day between the four courtrooms. Yeah. And... Sometimes you're the only attorney present in person. Very often. Um, yeah. I mean, very often. I mean, when I first when I first came down here, it was even worse. When I first came down here, I wouldn't see another attorney maybe all week here in person. Um, it's gotten better recently. Um, when I first um, started coming, in fact, it took the court a while to understand that I was going to be there in person each and every time. Um, because most attorneys who defend clients down here do their appearances by telephone. Um, so, like, the first week or two that I was down here, the uh, the judge was on the phone, like, shouting at my office because I wasn't available for my telephonic appearance. And 
my office was like, well, you may want to look in the waiting room. He's probably sitting out there right now waiting for his hearing. And so it took them a while to adjust. Stewart's isolation allows all sorts of mistreatment and malpractice to flourish. Amilcar Valencia told us the story of one person detained at Stewart, whose experience is typical. Uh, a person that I visited from Central America um, who came here as an asylum seeker um, was persecuted in, in his own homeland because um, uh, he used to work in a port um, and uh, a group uh, came to him and asked him that uh, he needed to assist them to smuggle drugs into the bins as they were you know, going to different places of, of, of the world. And he refuses, and then they threaten him to um, do something to his brother. Um, so he, he didn't fa- feel safe to stay in his homeland. Um, uh, one day they attacked him. Uh, he ended up at the hospital. He had police report. He had, um, uh, uh, you know, he, he, he had proof that he's been basically targeted by, by you know, this group. And he decided to leave his homeland. Uh, so he came to the United States um, and was detained at Stewart for three years. Wow. Um, and again, this is a person who is looking for safety, a person who is looking for protection. And the first thing that we're doing is put this person in solitary confinement or in detention. This person had few resources when they came to the U.S. And they had to use some of the programs that provide meager pay to get spending money for the prison commissary. One day, when they refused to work in the voluntary program, they were put in solitary confinement as punishment. He uh, voluntarily um, signed up to work in the kitchen, and he was getting paid you know, about $4 a day for eight hours shift. Um, um, and then uh, one day they come to him and said that I want, I, want, I want you to go back to the kitchen and work. And he didn't feel well and said that he, he didn't just feel that he wanted to go to work. He already ended up his shift. So he basically refused. Uh, and just because he refused to work for $4 a day in this voluntary work program, he was placed in segregation. Hmm. Detention centers like Stewart don't just make use of detainee labor to cut costs. They actually reap immense profits off the people detained there. A 2018 investigation by the Daily Beast found that for-profit immigration detention was a nearly $1 billion industry. Not only that, much of the money came from U.S. taxpayers. The more immigrants that are in detention, the more money private prison companies make. Stewart Detention Center is almost always at capacity for the amount of people who can be detained there, because CoreCivic, the corporation who runs it, has a per-bed contract with ICE. There are approximately as many detainees in Stewart Detention Center as there are people in the town of Lumpkin, and Stewart is the largest employer in the county. Profit motives guide everything when it comes to immigration detention. Everything in these detention centers, from the commissary to the telephone, costs exorbitant amounts of money which can only be earned by working for quarters on the hour. It's, it's so expensive. And this is, this is the weirdest thing that, you know, one, I mean, this is definitely labor exploitation uh, because you're paying people for those to work, you know, for eight hours shift. Um, 
And um, yeah, I mean, this is definitely you know another form of slavery. Um, and again, as you mentioned, commissary, I think it's expensive. If you um, want to buy, you know, because and this is tied to the services that are provided inside of the detention center. So the food is really bad. Uh, the quality is, 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 is bad. Uh, there's no nutrition in the food they're served to the people in the detention center. So many people rely on the commissary. They had to buy food in the facility. I mean, the... The things that they basically buy are, you know, uh, cookies, uh, Roman noodles, uh, you know, chips, you know, not healthy stuff. But, you know, people relied on that. Uh, so in, in a way, they also not only, uh, you know, the corporation is getting money for detaining every person, but they're also making money uh, in the commissary. Uh, and the phone calls are phone calls are also expensive. You had to, uh, you know, pay five dollars for for a phone call. If they're like if they're, you know, calling someone here in the states, it's probably um, you know more affordable. But if you wanted to talk to your, you know, father or family in you know El Salvador or Ghana or people in other places, um, you know, you 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 basically you know five dollars phone phone call only lasts you, you know, minutes. You know. You know, three or five minutes, right. um, and again, everything is tied to um, uh, the money-making machine, right? Uh, the people is being exploited uh, for the work they do, and also they had to also, uh, you know, buy in the commissary. They had to uh, basically use um, their labor. They use their labor. Uh, they are exploited, um, and they also buy from the same people who is exploiting them. The product that this corporation, you know, produces is incarcerating people, you know. So, I mean, the, the, the purpose of the detention center is not to, you know, detain people in as a humane way as possible until their hearings can be held. Their, their, their main goal is to create profit for their stockholders. So anywhere they can cut corners, um, they will. I mean, the place is chronically chronically understaffed, um, you know, which affects a whole bunch of things. I mean, there were only three, three um, um, visiting rooms for attorneys to meet with their clients for 2,100 detainees. So sometimes I have to wait three or four hours in the waiting room to see my clients. Now, thank God my, my, my firm doesn't charge by the hour. Right. You know, otherwise people would be, you know, you know, paying us thousands of dollars just to sit in the waiting room. I mean, it's completely crazy. Understaffing and corner cutting has a profound effect on the health of detained immigrants. With food that has almost no nutritional value, both in the mess and the commissary, immigrants with medical conditions have no way of meeting their dietary needs. Even worse, detained immigrants with chronic medical needs can be essentially ignored. And, you know, we, we hear stories all the time, you know, people who have, um, uh, you know, needs and some medications are not provided or need to see uh, the doctor and, and, and sometimes the, the visits to the doctor are scheduled, you know, you know, like three weeks, four weeks uh, from, you know, you need it now and you still need to go to, you know, just to do a, a sick call and see when, when you're able to see the doctor and it might not be immediately. You know, and uh, I, I've been in contact with someone who is now detained for more, more than a year, 
inside of the attention center, he he has so many medical issues, and he's only 33 years old. Um, uh, he's now in a wheelchair. He uh, felt inside of the attention center. He has um, uh, uh, kidney stones. He has so many issues. Um, and for months, we, you know, contactized, contact uh, congressional representatives, uh, sent letters, did a lot to ensure that he was receiving the care he needed. Again, because he came there walking with no medical issues, and now he's, he's in a wheelchair. Mm. Um, and for like months and months, contacting eyes, contacting elected officials, um, they have not provided, you know, a substantial medical attention to him. Um, and that, again, happens to many people uh, inside of the attention center. Most of the times they provide, you know, you know painkillers um, uh, for everything you have, right? Let's give you, you know, um, you know, set them in a fan or whatever, you know, and then, they, you know, and that's it, you know. Yeah. If you have a serious medical problem, um, you're less likely that you'll be seen uh, by, um, um, you know, taken to the hospital or like if you need surgery, for example, um, ICE needs to approve that. Even if, if the doctor says you need to be treated, you need to have a surgery, um, ICE is the entity that has to approve it. If they didn't, they do it, they don't do it, um, then this person, you know, pass, you know, months and sometimes years without any medical attention. Isolation, issues with food and telephones, and lack of medical care all played into Jill's experience in immigration detention, as we'll hear in a moment. But Jill Bikindu represents only one of the people organizations like Core Civic have profited off of. He represents only one of the people who have suffered abuse, neglect, and mistreatment in ICE custody. His story is not unique. He is not the only one. Exactly. Um, yeah, there, are, there are tons of stories of uh, many of them who, who are, in a sense, forgotten. Uh, who no, nobody else is there for, for them to, again, to listen to their stories um, and do something to uh, support them. Yeah. In Georgia, uh, when you first arrive, you know, they, they do like the screening, you know, you know, yeah. My um, my blood pressure was uh, like I don't know if it was the blood pressure or the diabetes. Right, the blood it sugar. Was up. Mm-hmm. It was very, you know, it was up, 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 up. So they did they decided to get me outside. I mean, we went to the hospital. That was the first hospitalization, right? Right. Yeah. So you went to the hospital immediately and when you then, got to Stewart. Yeah, yeah, immediately. And we came back, and the next day is that, you know, I wasn't taking any medication, you know. Upon Jill's arrival, he was hospitalized for his diabetes. He was treated immediately in the hospital in Americus, about 40 miles away from Stewart Detention Center. However, When he returned after treatment, he was not given any medication or nutrition befitting a diabetic. This was all true despite the fact that Jill's doctor called ahead and spoke with the medical staff at Stewart about his conditions and his needs. They were aware in advance of what medications he would need 
but they made no moves to provide them in a timely manner. Um, I remember, you know, we called everyone <laughs> about his medicine. Um, we called uh, David Price, we called Tom Tillis, we told them that he was in desperate need of having his medicine. I believe that people from his office uh, did make phone calls um, about that. Um, you know, I called through the line myself and tried to talk to a facility nurse. Um, I spoke with Jules' doctor, um, who had been following him at AUNC, uh, Chapel Hill, and he even called the medical staff there on Jules' behalf um, before Jules ever arrived on the ground at Stewart um, and explained to them the necessity of him receiving the correct medication. Nevertheless, it took weeks to get Jules any sort of medication. Even when he had his necessary medications, the diet at Stewart didn't change. After repeat hospital visits, the food at Stewart is finally what prompted a crisis. Weeks of detention center food sent Jill to Grady Hospital in Atlanta. I had like a, a constipation, like I had a constipation, yeah. I had a very, very constipation over there. And that, that, that took me to the hospital too. Yeah. More than just constipation, Jill was diagnosed officially with compacted bowels or fecal impaction. For weeks, he was unable to have a bowel movement, which in turn affected his eating and his overall health. He was in such pain that on-site staff and even regional doctors could not alleviate the condition. Jill's stay in Grady Hospital in Atlanta was immensely beneficial health-wise, but it cost him over $3,000. The bill was sent to his P.O. box after he was deported weeks later. $3,000 in healthcare costs that were caused by inadequate treatment in an ICE detention center. Yeah, from Seward, we went to Atlanta, to Atlanta detention center. On February 7th of 2018, ICE finally realized they were not able to take adequate care of Gilles, as his community had suggested from the beginning. He was transferred to the Atlanta City Detention Center after his stay at Grady Hospital. Atlanta City Detention Center, or ACDC, is not an immigration facility. It's simply a city jail that's not privately owned and operated. Conditions improved dramatically at ACDC, and Gilles' health was no longer putting his life and well-being in jeopardy. Meanwhile, Jill's community came to him in Atlanta. Greenwood Forest held a vigil outside of ACDC, demanding his release and detailing the efforts they were undergoing to achieve it. We are here to demand Immigration and Customs Enforcement to grant Mr. McKendoo's humanitarian parole and save his life. We have come here this day to pray that you would soften the hearts of all pharaohs withhold your children in bondage. O oh Lord, hear our prayers. Amen. Oh, hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. No deportation. No, no deportation with your mind. Stay on freedom. No deportation with your mind. Yeah, I went. I went to see him twice right. there. Um, the first time I was by myself, and we we'd sent me down as soon as he was moved, um, in case they were 
going to deport him right away, um, which they didn't right away. But I remember in the Atlanta City Detention Center, visitation was much more possible than it was um, at Stewart, where you had to go through all sorts of clearances and stuff to even get in. And by the time we had submitted all the paperwork for that process, they moved him to another place, so we would have never been able to see him. What I remember about visiting him in Atlanta was you. It was so there were so many barriers. Um, you would have to check in at a front desk, go up an elevator when your time was available. That took you to a really dingy looking floor that had a bunch of closet doors in them, and you would sit in these little closet sized rooms where there was a sheet of bulletproof glass in between you and the person on the other side. And there were phones on either side that you talked to, um, to talk to each other. And I remember seeing Jill the first time, um, how haggard he looked and how you could see the, the visible toll that, detention had taken on his body um this was after he'd been in the hospital three times that that i saw him for the first time and um by the time we saw him as a group um he had he had a beard um which was different um <laughs> he, he was like looking at a different person sometimes when we got in there and i remember all three of us his pastors crammed into one side and having to pass the phone between us to talk to him or talking really, really loud so he could hear through the, through the glass. And, um, I just, I remember the barriers the most. I remember being really excited that we were finally going to see Jill, um, after so much time. Um, but also just the ominous, um, feeling of we're finally here um, but now we're separated by glass um, and trying to talk to him um, knowing that he was getting closer and closer to a major airport knowing that he was probably going to be deported um, and that we had a limited time frame and all of the details of um, you know what are all the questions that you have and what are you thinking about what we're doing and is there anything that you want us to communicate with your lawyer but also you know if you do get deported you know here's the plan um here's what we've been thinking what do you think how is this going to work and here's what we would suggest based off of what we know um and then just sitting there with him and all the cards that people from our congregation had tried to mail him that uh didn't make it there um that they wouldn't allow to come through into the detention facility um, and we read him one card in particular from uh, one of his friends uh, Susan and I remember just breaking into tears when we were reading that because um, it was a it was a goodbye of sorts um, and a thank you um, I thank you for your faithfulness for being my brother in Christ um, for what you've taught me about my faith and sort of a blessing. Um, and I just remember how tender that moment was 
Um, and we prayed with Joel before we left that little dark, musty, uh, God-forsaken room. Um, and we sat there with him and prayed with him. And we all, he started it, but he put his hand up on the glass because he couldn't touch us um, or hug us goodbye. And he held up his hand to the glass window. Um, and we all held up our hands to him um, as a parting blessing. And I'll never forget that moment. The contact I, I, I was having with you, uh, knowing that uh, you were working, you know, on my case, you know, uh, the church, and uh, you had uh, like uh, that action towards the the senators, you know, the representative, uh, the House of Representatives, and things like that, you know. In January, for example, during a regularly scheduled check-in. Representative David Price in a hearing with ICE on Capitol Hill. One of my constituents was arrested. He'd been in the U.S. for 14 years, had built a life in North Carolina, a prominent member of a local church, living with HIV, chronic kidney failure, and diabetes. His only crime was overstaying his visa because he had a credible fear of political retaliation in returning to his home country. Jill's community at Greenwood Forest Baptist Church worked with the offices of Representative David Price and Senator Tom Tillis, a Democrat and a Republican, to work toward Jill's release and to prevent his deportation. Both politicians were rebuffed by ICE. Authorities at the Department of Homeland Security, including Secretary Kirsten Nielsen, refused to take Representative Price's call. Immigration authorities conveyed to Senator Tillis's office that Gilles should apply for a niche form of relief called humanitarian parole, but then rejected the application almost as soon as they had received it. I was kind of hopeful, you know. I was kind of hopeful. We were too. Kind of we were too, especially we had, there was one... Uh, moment that we thought uh, maybe Senator Tillis or Congressman Price was going to work something out um, with that human yeah, yeah. humanitarian parole application. And, uh, yeah, yeah, and uh, for me, I think at that point, so that that was the only, you know, I, th- I thought that that was going to work because it's it's a humanitarian case, you know, with the involvement of those uh, those uh, high rank, you know, people. Yeah. I thought that it's going to work. Since Jill's time in ICE custody, Detention centers have been in the spotlight multiple times. I have put in place a zero-tolerance policy. In the summer of 2018, then-Attorney General Jeff Sessions' family separation policy led Senator Jeff Merkley to shine a public light on children in detention, sparking protests around the country. They call it zero-tolerance, but a better name for it is zero-humanity, and there's zero logic to this policy. In early 2019, 
multiple children died in ICE custody because of medical complications. From the American Southwest, an autopsy, an investigation has now been ordered. A seven-year-old migrant girl dying while in U.S. Border Patrol custody. And this month, the public learned ICE was still detaining babies and infants who contend with dirty drinking water, limited baby food, and lack of medical care. ICE officials say the agency has released 12 of the 16 babies being held at a rural Texas detention center after complaints by immigrant advocates about dirty water, limited baby food, and a lack of medical care. The children, nine of whom are under a year old, were being held in a detention facility in Dilly, Texas. Some of these events have prompted calls and pushes for reform while others have only caused ICE to forcefully reject any imposition of accountability. Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms even issued an executive order to prevent ACDC from accepting new detained immigrants from ICE. All of these stories reinforce the fact that Jill Bikindu was not the only one, and that he is not alone. next time on Inhospitable. So the morning that they deported you, can you describe that? Yeah, early in the morning was it maybe two. They came and uh, but I know, I, I mean, I knew they, they, they was doing, you know. Yeah. I, I, I knew, I knew that uh, when that moment came to come, no, they come get you. And, uh, yeah, you have to pack your things and, uh, you know. And that was my turn because that happened to other guys and that, that day was my turn. And they came and uh, say, uh, you know, pack your things. Uh, you are ready to go. And, uh, Jill Bikindu faces down deportation. Inhospitable is a podcast from Greenwood Forest Baptist Church in Cary, North Carolina. You can find out more at inhospitableusa.org, and you can follow us on Twitter at inhospitableusa. Inhospitable is written by Wesley Spears Newsom and is produced by yours truly. Special thanks again to Marty Rosenbluth and to Emilcar Valencia from El Refugio Ministries. You can find out more about the good work that Emilcar and El Refugio does at elrefugiostuart.org.